join me, if you will, in Genesis chapter 14, uh, one of the most neglected texts in the Bible, as are many, uh, ironically, in the book of Genesis. But I want to ask you to turn there, and this morning we're going to consider the undesirable path that gets you everywhere. Andy Harris was on such a path at one point, and had he taken it, it could have gotten him to where he needed to be. He was climbing Mount Everest in Nepal, the highest peak in all the earth. Many have tried uh, to scale that through the years. And the elevation is so high that eventually you come to the point where you're close to running out of oxygen. You know, that's okay as long as you don't have to breathe. But if you're like any other human being, you've got to do that. Uh, What has happened through the years is that uh, those that have climbed Mount Everest and maintain it, they place oxygen canisters along and along up the path uh, so that uh, you can fill up your oxygen tank or make use of one of those. But Andy got so high and he did not uh, make use of these oxygen canisters and so he got disoriented. And uh, as he was disoriented, he did see some oxygen canisters, but in his disoriented state, he convinced himself that they were empty when in fact they were full. And those that were in communication with him told him they are full. Use them. But being disoriented like he was from a lack of oxygen, he did not believe them and he died for lack of oxygen. Ladies and gentlemen, that's oftentimes how some people view the will of God. There's no way in the world, some people think, that God's will and God's way could be any better than what they're doing now. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to vocation, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to how to deal with the culture that is rampant in uh, its um, abandonment of the ways of God, uh, they, they think certainly God's way and God's will has got to be the inferior way to get things done in life. I hope to convince you otherwise. And so, in, in other words, there are many people who view God's will as the undesirable path like Lot did in Genesis chapter 13. Abram viewed it differently and it led him everywhere. So I want you to look with me in Genesis 13 and 14. And later in the message, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 11. And you may want to put a finger in that text. Back in Genesis chapter 13, Abram and Lot were blessed so marvelously with their herds and their flocks that they could no longer share the land. Their herdsmen were battling each other and they had stress and tension between each other because they were encroaching upon each other's land. And Abram said, let's, let's not let there be any stress between us. No, no division between us. You choose where you want to go and I'll take what's left. And Lot, uh, having a worldliness in his heart, chose the plains of Jordan which were toward the land of Sodom, where the men and women of Sodom were exceedingly wicked, the Bible says in Genesis 13. Lot chose that and got tangled up with the men of Sodom. Now, the city of Sodom was part of a confederacy of five different nations, some small towns, with each of them with their own king, uh, something like a mayor but with an awful lot more power, no council, no votes, no elections, and five of them would join together. And uh, the result was, is that uh, they got tired of being under a yoke of taxation from another king who was part of a confederacy of four different kings. And so they ended up rebelling is what they did. The five kings rebelled and the four kings invaded 
uh, from the other side, and they invaded and they defeated these five kings, one of whom happened to be the king of Sodom. But the four victorious kings overreached, overreached, and they kidnapped Lot. And that did not settle well with Abram. Abram gathered 318 of his men and went and found those four kings and whipped them. I mean, just tore them up, rescued Lot, and came back. And that's the story that we find in Genesis chapter 14. And I want to read as a summary verse, verse number 12 of Genesis chapter 14. These four kings, it says, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. The point here is, is that Abram did God's will, and so he was far more useful than Lot ever thought of being. The man or the woman, the boy or the girl, who does the will of God is far more useful than anyone who rejects it. And I want you to see this here in the text, and I want to ask four questions about us that arise from the text that will help us to evaluate where we are with the will of God. And the first question happens to be this. What about your theological positions? What about your, are you in the will of God when it comes to what you believe about the Bible and theology? Are you in the will of God? You know, it, the will of God is not only a matter of what we do, it's a matter of what we think. And if we're going to be like Jesus Christ, we've got to believe what Jesus Christ believed. We've got to think like Jesus when it comes to the Bible. We've got to think like Jesus when it comes to salvation. When it comes to sin, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to moral choices, we've got to think like Jesus when it comes to heaven and hell. And any departure from the thinking of Christ is a departure from Christ-likeness. So our theology has got to be where the thinking and thought of Jesus Christ happens to be on these Matters. So what about our theological positions? Verses 1 through 11 mention a number of place names and they mention a number of kings. Oh, and the liberal critics have had a field day with this text. They say, we don't know of anyone that has ever been named this as far as a person or king, and we don't know of any places like that either. Well, I dare say that the city of Bogart's not going to show up in archaeology either, and yet there is a place called Bogart. I mean, the silly way that some end up thinking is just beyond human reasoning. And it's not the way normal people think. And, of course, no one's ever accused most biblical scholars of being very normal anyway. But the point that I'm making here is, is that the archaeologists have dug and the historians have researched and studied. And the names that are found in verses 1 through 11 for the kings and the cities and the towns were ordinary names for that region of the world in that era and in that time. Ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it. What people end up believing is as much a moral issue as it is an intellectual issue. There are many who dismiss the existence of God and His Word, not because the truth contradicts the Word of God, but because the Word of God contradicts their lifestyle. When someone gets outside the will of God, you will usually find their theology and positions following them outside the will of God. One, one atheist, Thomas Nagel, frankly admitted, he said, I want, atheism, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy 
by the fact that some people are the most intel- are, uh, who are the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And so he shapes the evidence and the thinking in order to confirm his atheism. Not that there is any evidence for it, not that there's any substantive evidence against the, will of, uh, against the existence of God, but that's what he wants. Some of these people believe precisely what they want, no matter what the evidence says. And it's not, listen to me, it's not a lack of evidence for God's existence. It's not a lack of evidence for the truthfulness and inerrancy of the Word of God. It is the suppression of evidence. That's the problem. And so our beliefs are as much a moral issue as they are an intellectual issue. You find some people drifting outside of God's will when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to finances, when it comes to marriage and family, when it comes to uh, some other moral issue. They do that, and I guarantee you folks that within a few months of rejecting the Bible and the Word of God. Just give them a while. So let me ask you, where are you when it comes to theology? Listen, you cannot be mightily used of God unless you stand on God's Word. God will not bless the unbelieving life. You've got to stand on the Word of God. Well, that's the first thing, uh, theological positions. And let me say to you, let me assure you, after all the blog posts are posted, after all the um, uh, podcasts are casted, after all the articles are written, after all of the books are published that criticize the Word of God, God's Word will still stand. The grass may wither, the flower fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever, is what the Word says. Uh, And by the way, if you're single and you anticipate getting married one day, don't marry anybody who's departed from the Word of God. The second thing is this, not only theological positions, but second question, what about your personal problems? Verse 12 says that they also took Lot, and they took him from Sodom, a place where he should not have been. Lot made himself vulnerable by going to Sodom. He created a problem by going to Sodom, and Abram had to come along, and Abram had to fix it. And that's the question I want to ask you about personal problems. Are you creating problems Or are you solving them? There are some people that on a regular basis, they need somebody to intervene with their kids. There are some people on a regular basis, they need somebody to intervene in their marriage. They need someone to intervene for them at work because they are constantly creating problems. I mean, they've got broken relationships in their families. They've got broken relationships with friends at church. They've got broken relationships with their mortgage company or their landlord. They've got broken relationships here, there, and yon. In other words, their years are scattered with broken relationships. They create problems, and they need someone to step in and solve them for them and have them bailed out. That's the way Lot is. Uh, In other words, they create headaches everywhere they go. They do not relieve them. When someone is in the will of God, they are a problem solver. They are not trouble makers. And some people just need to get beyond it. They need to get into the will of God on these matters. Proverbs 16, 7 says this, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. 
God gives favor. God gives blessing to the one who walks in his will. God's will will make you a problem solver and not a headache to other people. In other words, you solve problems, you do not constantly create them. And by the way, if you're single looking to get married, Look at the relationship history of the person in whom you're interested. Is their relationship history and past littered with broken relationships? If they are and you're praying for God to give you a sign, there's your sign. It's all the sign you need. Third question is this. What about finances and possessions? Chapter 17, verses 1 through 21, is the story of the king of Sodom coming and meeting Abram. And offering him uh, not only the people that had been recovered, uh, but also offering Abram some wealth and some spoils, which were rightfully Abram's. And that's what he did in verse number 17. Now in verse 21, um, the king of Sodom said to Abram, You give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom in verse 22, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. I won't take one of your shoelaces. I'm not even going to take a thread from any of your clothing whatsoever. I'm not going to let you enrich me. I do not need your riches at all. I don't need your wealth. I don't need you to bail me out financially like we're bailing out Lot. Instead, look what Abram did in verse number 20. A, before his birth, Jesus Christ appeared as Melchizedek in verses 18 through 20. Abram noticed that because uh, Melchizedek blessed Abraham in verse 19 and 20. And look at the end of verse 20. Instead of Abram taking even a shoelace or a thread from the king of Sodom, look what he did in verse 20. He gave him a tithe of all. So Abram is just tithed. He's got 10% less than when he started, and he still won't take the goods of the king of Sodom. He doesn't need anyone to bail him out financially. He's not concerned. Abram is not a receiver. Abram is a giver. He's got the blessing of God on his life. He did not dwell in the plains of Jordan. He didn't get anywhere near Sodom. He stayed in God's will as far as God's geographical location. He was living in the right place. And therefore, Abram was so stable financially that when he had depleted himself by 10%, had given up 10% of his income, ladies and gentlemen, Abram still did not need the goods of the king of Sodom. He wasn't concerned. He wasn't worried. Instead, he could be a tither. Listen to me carefully. Whenever you're in the will of God, God transforms you from a taker to a giver. And you be very, very leery if, leery if you're single. Be very careful of those who are always having to be bailed out financially by their family, friends, or others. Be very, very leery. I remember Michael Battle in college asked me to borrow some money. I said, how much you need? He said, how much you got? I had $13. I gave it to him. I'm still waiting for that joker to repay me. And Michael had a history of that. People had to bail him out over and over again. Listen, don't get tangled up with somebody who's so irresponsible and outside God's will. Someone's always having to bail them out financially. Find somebody like Abram who's got their stuff together financially 
and they are doing the will of God. And it shows up financially. Now, during the month of February, and guess give us just a moment here for some internal business. We guess we didn't invite you here for your money today, uh, just your worship to Jesus. But if you will, in your worship guide, take out your generosity ladder real quick. Our uh, stewardship committee has been leading us to consider generosity and creating a culture of generosity, encouraging us to be givers and to grow in our giving. And you've been aware of that for the month of February. There are some people that are just initially giving. They made their first gift, and on average here at Beach Haven, we have about 34 people who start giving every year. Uh, first-time givers just about every year for the last four or five years. And so some are just beginning to give. Some are consistent. Some are intentional, and there's a description there of them. And then some are abundant givers. Some are legacy givers. Now, you have looked at this during the month of February. You know where you are now. Let me ask you something. Members, can you climb up a rung on the ladder? Can you climb up one? Can you climb up two? Some of you are ready to go from one or two all the way to the top. Would you do something with this form here? Would you take and circle the rung of the ladder to where you can go before the end of the year? If you're an initial giver, can you become a consistent giver by the end of the year? If you're consistent, can you become an intentional giver by the end of the year? If you're an abundant giver, can you become a legacy giver? And if you're a legacy giver, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, just, do, just keep on doing what you're doing, okay? But can you do that and, and, and all? Here's what we want you to do. Make this completely anonymous. Don't put your name on it. But circle the rung of the ladder that will be your goal this year. And when the offering plate comes by this morning, place it in there and keep it completely anonymous. And guess, by the way, we don't expect that of you. Uh, that's what our members uh, do. They, they love to give. And you know what the cool thing is about Beach Haven? We've got members in our church that if they couldn't give, it would hurt them. It would pain them. That's where their heart is. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see such a generous church body. Well, finances and possessions. But there's a fourth question, and that is moral perversity. What about moral perversity? There are some dear souls in and outside churches that are entirely predictable. Whatever moral compromise is being hoisted and shoved down the throats of the nation, you can guarantee them getting on board with it. Whether it's marriage, sexuality, whether it happens to be um, the public perspective and view of the church, if there's a compromise, they're going to jump on the bandwagon. Some of them even claim to be Christians. And they'll violate the Word of God and not even be aware that Scripture prohibits such behavior. I mean, they are entirely predictable. Entirely predictable. Whatever comes down the pike from the news media, Whatever comes down the pike from the compromising university professor, whatever comes down the pike from the Hollywood celebrity, they're going to be on board with it, enthusiastic and defensive about moral perversity. Let me say to you, when you're in the will of God, you don't do that. When you're in the will of God, God gives you the strength in His will to stand on His Word. Now, it doesn't make you ugly or obnoxious. We don't want any of that. We don't need any more Christians with the personality of a Poulan chainsaw. We don't need any more of that. Not at all. That's not what we're asking for. And the fact that you're thinking that's what I'm saying means you're outside the will of God. The fact that your mind would go there, that means you're probably outside the will of God. 
Well, he wants us to be ugly and mean. He wants us to lack compassion. Boom, you're outside the will of God. All right, let's do it. Let's be done with it. Can you do this? No more. On three, do it. One, two, three. No more. Let's not think that way. Just because we're preaching holiness and righteousness, just because we're preaching the standard of the will of God, just because we're standing in His will and objecting in a Christ-like spirit to moral perversity does not mean that we've got to be obnoxious and wrong, and you shouldn't think that about us. If you're thinking that, you're probably outside the will of God. All right, let's be done with it. No more of that. None of this more hypercriticism of Christian people who are standing on the Word of God. They're just trying to be like Jesus. They're just trying to do what's best for others. They trust the Lord. They think God is holy. And they believe God is holy and God is right. And God is never, ever wrong. And quite frankly, some of us are tired of the wreckage that moral perversity brings on marriages and families and hearts and minds and souls. We've watched it for decades. It's confirmed the truthfulness of the Word of God. And ladies and gentlemen, the best thing that could ever happen to our nation is not to drift from the Word of God, but to stand on it. That'd be the best thing to happen to the nation, to stand on what God says. There are too many tears have been shed. Too many marriages have been broken. Too many families have been destroyed by moral perversity. And you think we're the harsh ones. No. No. God's ways are right. God's ways are good. God's ways are love. There is no way in life better than the will and the word of God. None better. So what about moral perversity? Well, some folks are entirely predictable. They're going to compromise with whatever comes out of Hollywood or comes out of the uh, D.C. or the media. If you're a Christian, you need to value the Word of God. And that's what Abram does in verses 22 through 24. He will not take, he will not take the goods and the financial blessing or the material blessing of the king of Sodom because he doesn't want the rest of the world to think that he endorses the king of Sodom. He doesn't want them to think of that at all. And so he says in verse 23, I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. And that I will not take anything that's yours, lest you say, I made Abraham rich. And so that's where he stands. Moral perversity. Listen, Proverbs 24.10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. People that are compromising, compromised a long time ago. They got outside the will of God and their life and their beliefs and positions have simply manifested that through the years. And that's what's happened. They've had small strength. And I want to make sure you clearly understand, you need to be less concerned about being politically correct and more concerned about being biblically and eternally correct. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. We're going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. And you've got to make sure that the decisions you make in this day set you up for eternity. Because this life is a flash, but eternity is too long to be wrong. Way too long to be wrong. Make sure the decisions that you're making in this day set things up for a great eternity. And, and the first thing that you've got to do then is do the will of God in salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says this, uh, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish. 
God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. The first thing is, make sure you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ stained that cross with His blood, spilt it out upon the ground for your sins and mine, and that blood has never lost its power. It's still the way to appeal to God. He's risen from the dead. He will save. He will forgive. He will make you clean. Even if you've never even concerned yourself with any element of the will of God, God will forgive you today if you'll repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. Our, our purity is another element of God's will. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And then he specifically gets off into sexuality. It is God's will for us to walk in holiness. All the commands of the Bible in the New Testament are the will of God. God wants us to obey the commands of the New Testament. He's given those to us. Now I hear some critics saying, well, wait a minute. What what about the Old Testament? You're cherry picking. What about all those strange laws in the Old Testament? Why are you cherry picking? Why don't you say obey those? Why just the New Testament? Let me ask you this. I'll answer your question with a question. Why are you cherry picking the laws of Britain? You are. Why are you cherry picking the laws of the United Kingdom? You're probably obeying the laws of the United Kingdom from about murder and uh, about uh, such things as perjury and, and some other things. But I can tell you, you're probably not obeying the traffic laws, which side of the road you're going. So why are you cherry picking the laws of the United Kingdom? Well, we say, that's silly. Those laws weren't given to me. And there you've got the answer to your question. The laws of the Old Testament there were not given to us. The ones in the New Testament were. That's why we obey those. So all the commands of the New Testament are the will of God. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, no matter what culture thinks, God wants us to obey the laws of the New Testament. And then the, the, the example of Jesus Christ is God's will. And so it is God's will for you to come to Christ today. It is God's will for you to grow in purity. It is God's will to obey His commands in the New Testament. It is God's will also to follow the example of Jesus Christ and not to back down on it one bit. Now, I've got to say, if you struggled with that, you need to know at the same time, there's a great God of grace who's got more grace in Him than you have sin in you. He's got more love in Him than you have guilt in you. And when Jesus went to the cross, he carried your sins with him. He buried them in the tomb. He was triumphant over every one of them by raising from the dead. He's alive today, and he can make you a new creation in him is what he can do. And he'd love to do it if you would repent and place faith in him. That's what he wants from you. Now, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, and I want to press upon you the urgency of doing the will of God. Solomon did fine up until the end of his reign. He did a wonderful job, built the temple. He was David's son, wisest man in the world, but soon became a fool at the end of his life. He got outside of God's will for marriage. It says in verse 1 of 1 Kings 11, King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. So he just married a bunch of them. He got out of God's will for monogamy and uh, one man, one woman marriage. And to satisfy all of these umpteen million wives that he had, he ended up building altars for them and ended up uh, sacrificing to some foreign and pagan gods. And that bothered God. It offended God. It angered him, in fact, the text says. And God confronted Solomon. And he uh, told him in verse number 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, 
I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I'll not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. So in addition to the tribe of Judah, he was going to keep the tribe of Benjamin. Solomon lost the other ten tribes of Israel, and ladies and gentlemen, they have never been recovered since. You've heard of the lost ten tribes of Israel? Nobody but God knows where they are. This was three millenniums ago. One bad decision has affected three millenniums, and we are still living with it today. Listen to me. Look at the end of my nose and get this down right. Get it down solid. Get it down forever. You have got to do the will of God or the generations may suffer. This is important stuff. Every decision you make about your walk, about your purity, what you're going to do with Jesus Christ, who you're going to marry, how you're going to conduct your family, the beliefs and the philosophical foundation of your life and your family and your marriage, everything, your vocation, you've got to get this right. And I want to tell you something. If you do not, you can affect the generations that follow. We are still living with Solomon's error today. Israel is and the world is as well. Only God knows where those lost ten tribes are on this day. Get this right. Now listen, there's just one thing that you've got to do to get God's will right. We can fill this out with some other details, but one thing. Surrender. If you are willing to do God's will in these areas, and you just surrender, God will make sure you know what His will is. God will get it to you. One thing, and that is surrender. Now, some of you walking in confusion about your vocation. Some of you walking in confusion about a lot of different things. It may be that it's not time for you to know, and that's okay. God will take care of the timing. But for other people, it's not a matter of timing. It's that you probably already know what God wants you to do and you just don't want to do it. This is what I'm saying. If you'll take care of this one thing, God will show you. Surrender. Do what God wants you to do. Surrender now to what He wants you to do with Jesus Christ. What He wants you to do with marriage, with your vocation. What He wants you to do with maybe some of the conflict you're facing, with your finances. All the areas of life. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Surrender completely to God. And if you'll do that, God will direct you in His will. He'll not fail you. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. Well, listen, I've not done that. I mean, I've been, there have been times I've been a troublemaker. I've not handled my finances right. I I haven't even known there's a will of God. I mean, I've got a Bible I should have known, but I've not even cared about that. And you know what? I, I, 
You know, whatever comes out of Hollywood or the media or D.C., you know, I, I, I do tend to jump on board with those compromises. I'm ashamed of myself. This is horrible. I'm ready for a change. If that's you, there's hope for you. There's hope. God is willing to forgive and change your life in Jesus Christ. What do I do? Jesus said in Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The will of God for your life is at hand. You're just this far from it if you'll repent. In other words, you look at your decisions in your previous life before right now, you get abhorred with it, and you turn and say, Dear God, whatever you want, the answer is yes. The Bible says that is repentance. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been walking along a sidewalk? You wanted to take a shortcut, and you're about to step on the grass, but you saw a sign that says, Keep off the grass. And you changed your mind, decided to stay on the sidewalk instead of, crossing the grass. That, that is sort of an act of repentance. You want to go a different way? God wants you to go the right way, and the decision you make now to change your mind and do what God wants you to do, that's repentance. Change your mind. Uh, then the Bible says in Luke seven fifty that Jesus said, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. Anytime any of us ever flies on an airplane, it's a great big act of faith. Did you know that? Most of us take it for granted right now. But I remember one time uh, I was on one flight, and every flight I've ever been on and that you've been on, we have to trust the pilot is going to take the plane where he says it will go, where it's scheduled to go. If I take a flight from here to D.C., I trust the pilot to get me to D.C., not to Minneapolis, St. Paul. I do remember I took a mission trip to Venezuela one time, and the pilot came back and flew from, uh, my, from uh, uh, Maracaibo, Venezuela, back into um, Miami for a connecting flight. But when we landed, he said, Welcome to the People's Republic of China. <laughs> he was clowning around, of course, but you, you trust a pilot to go where he says he's going to go. Listen, you, place faith, you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ, God is going to salvation and forgiveness, and he'll do it every time if you'll turn to him and come to him. Hey, would you stand together real quickly? Let's ask God to do a neat work in our hearts and lives. We're going to have staff here standing here in the front in just a moment to receive you. You come. Do the will of God. Surrender. Say yes to him. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Say yes to church membership. Say yes to the ministry. Say yes to whatever it is God wants to do in your life. And let's pray together about it. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the opportunity to serve. We bless you.